geese heading back north stopped on our valley to breed, to build nests and to raise their young. Ravens with their wings and backs shining greasy in the sun were always flying across the valley from one side of the mountains to the other. Anyone who needed to make a little money could always do so in April by planting seedlings for the forest service. And it was always a time of relaxation because of that fact. A time of no tempers, only loose happiness. I did not need much money in April or in any other month, and I would often sit out at the picnic table with Glenda and Tom and Nancy and drink beer. Glenda would never drink more than two. She had yellow hair that was cut short and lake blue eyes, a pale face, and a big grin, not unlike Tom's, that belied her seriousness, though... Now that she's gone, I think I remember her always being able to grin because of her seriousness. I certainly don't understand why it seems that way to me now. Like the rest of us, Glenda had no worries, not in April, and certainly not later on in the summer. She had only to run. I never saw Glenda in the fall, which was when she left. I don't know if she ever smiled like that when she got back to Washington or not. She was separated from her boyfriend who lived in California. She didn't seem to miss him, didn't ever seem to think about him. The planters burned the slopes they had cut the previous summer and fall before planting the seedlings. And in the afternoons, there would be a sweet-smelling haze that started about halfway up the valley walls and rose into the highest mountains and then spilled over them, moving north into Canada, riding on the south winds. The fire's haze never settled in our valley, but would hang just above us on the days it was there, turning all the sunlight a beautiful smoky blue and making things when seen across the valley, a barn in another pasture, a fence line, seem much farther away than they really were. It made things seem softer, too. There was a long, zippered scar on the inside of Glenda's knee that started just above her ankle and went all the way up inside her leg to mid-thigh. She had injured the knee when she was 17, long before the days of arthroscopic surgery, and she'd have to have the knee rebuilt the old-fashioned way, with blades and scissors. But the scar only seemed to make her legs, both of them, look even more beautiful the part that was not scarred, and even the scar had a graceful curve to it as it ran such a long distance up her leg. Glenda wore green nylon shorts and a small white shirt when she ran and a headband. Her running shoes were dirty white, the color of the road dust during the drought. I'm 32 and have six or seven more good years of running, she said whenever anyone asked her what her plans were and why she ran so much and why she had come to our valley to run. Mostly it was the men who sat around with us in front of the saloon, watching the river, watching the spring winds, and just being glad with the rest of us that winter was over. I do not think the women liked Glenda very much, except for Nancy. It was not very well understood in the valley what a great runner Glenda was. I think it gave Glenda pleasure that it wasn't. I would like for you to follow Glenda on the bicycle, Tom said the first time I met her. Tom had invited me over for dinner. Glenda had gotten into the valley the day before, though we had all known that she was coming for weeks beforehand, and we'd been waiting for her. There's money available from her sponsor to pay you for it, Tom said, handing me some money or trying to, finally putting it in my shirt pocket. He had been drinking and seemed as happy as I had seen him in a long time. He called her Glenn instead of Glenda sometimes. 
And after putting the money in my pocket, he put an arm around Nancy, who looked embarrassed for me, and another arm around Glenda, who did not. And so I had to keep the money, which was not that much anyway. <laughs> you just ride along behind her with a pistol. Tom had a pistol holstered on his belt, a big pistol, and he took it off and he handed it to me. And you make sure nothing happens to her the way it did to that Okerson woman. The Okerson woman had been visiting friends and had been walking home, but had never made it. A bear had evidently charged out of the willows along the river road and had dragged her back across the river. It was in the spring when she disappeared and everyone thought she'd run away. And her husband had gone around all summer making a fool out of himself by talking badly about her. And then hunters found her in the fall, right before the first snow. There were always bear stories in any valley, but we thought ours was the worst because it was the most recent and because it was a woman. It'll be good exercise for me, I said to Tom. And then I said to Glenda, do you run fast? It wasn't a bad job. I was able to keep up with her most of the time, and we started early in the mornings. Some days, Glenda would run just a few miles very fast, and other days, it seemed she was going to run forever. There was hardly ever any traffic, not a single car or truck, and I'd daydream as I rode along behind her. We'd leave the meadows out in front of Tom's place and head up the South Fork Road up into the woods toward the summit going past my cabin. The sun would be burning brightly by the time we neared the summit, and we'd be up into the haze from the planting fires, and everything would be foggy and odd-looking as if we had gone back in time, as if we were living in a time when things had really happened, when things still mattered and not everything had been decided yet. Glenda would be sweating so hard from the running, the summit, that her shirt and shorts would be drenched, her hair damp and sticking to the side of her face, and the sweat would wet her socks and even her tennis shoes. But she was always saying that the people she would be racing against would be training even harder than she was. There were lakes up past the summit, and the air was cooler. On the north slopes, the lakes still had thin crusts of ice over them, crusts that thawed out barely each afternoon, but that froze again each night. And what Glenda liked to do after she'd reached the summit, her face as bright as if sunburned, and her wrists limp and loose, sometimes wavering a little in her stride, finally so great was the heat and her exhaustion, was to leave the road and run down the game trail leading to the lakes, tripping, stumbling, running downhill again, and I'd have to throw the bike down and hurry after her. And pulling off her shirt, she'd run into the shallows of the first lake, her feet breaking through the thin ice, and then she would sit down in the cold water like some animal chased there by hounds. It feels good, she said the first time she did that. She leaned her head back on the ice behind her, the ice she had not broken through, and she spread her arms out across the ice as if it were resting on a crucifix, and she looked up at the haze in the sky with nothing above us, for we were above the tree line. Come over here, she said. Come feel this. I waded out into the pond, following her trail through the ice, and sat down next to her. She took my hand, and she put it on her chest. What I felt in there was like nothing I had ever imagined. It was like lifting up the hood of a car that is still running, with all the cables and belts and fan blades still running, and I wanted to take my hand away. I wanted to get her to a doctor. <laughs> I wondered if she was going to die and if I would be responsible. 
I wanted to pull my hand away, but she made me keep it there, and gradually the drumming slowed, became steadier, and still she made me keep my hand there until we could both feel the water's coldness. Then we got out. I had to help her up because her injured knee was stiff, and we laid her clothes out on the rocks to dry in the sun, and we lay out on flat rocks ourselves and let the wind and the sun dry us as well. She said that she had come to the mountains to run because it would strengthen her knee. But there was something that made me believe that that was not the reason and not the truth. Though I cannot tell you what other reason there might have been. We went into the lake every hot day after her run, and there were always the thinnest sheets of ice back in the shadows. It felt wonderful, and lying out in the sun afterward was wonderful too. After we had dried, our hair smelled like the smoke from the fires in the valley below. Sometimes I thought that Glenda might be dying and had come here to live her last days to run in a country of great beauty. After we were dry, we walked back, and as we went back over the crest of the summit and started down toward the valley, we would slowly come out of the haze and would be able to see all the valley below us, green and soft, with the slow wind of the Yak River crawling through the middle of it. And on the north wall of the valley, midway up the slopes, the ragged fires would be burning, with wavering lines and shifting walls of smoke rising from behind the trees, sheets of smoke rising straight into the sky. The temptation to get on the bike and just coast all the way down was always strong. But I knew what my job was, we both did. And it was the time when bears were coming out of hibernation, when everything was. And the safety of the winter was not to be confused with the seriousness of the summer, with the way things were changing.